This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for horror anthologies? Descend the Stony Staircase, and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the Idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of crypt keepers. No, what do you got? You got something else? I was going to say horror fans, but... Horror fans, that too. Uh, my name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Spooky Ray. Hello, Will, and everybody else. Hey, it's almost here, right? I mean, maybe it's here and passed already by the time you're listening to this, so happy Halloween. We've talked about it. It's our favorite holiday. So today on the show, we are talking to someone who's, you know, just so now forever associated with Halloween and horror. Uh, generally, Mr. John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper. Now, uh, I wanted to ch- maybe do a Crypt Keeper voice there, but I'm not going to do it because, I mean, I don't, look, I'm not going to do it on the show where John Kassir's on. I'll save it for no. another episode, right? Yeah, I also do a half-assed version of yeah. it, but... There's no way in hell I'm going to do it on the episode where he's on. Maybe let's That's see. nonsense. See if we're brave enough to do it for John himself. But I'm saying right now, no. No, we will not be brave enough to do that. Okay. Hey, before we get started, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, review, comment, uh, tap someone on the shoulder and tell them, listen to the idiots because it helps other folks find the show. And, and it will be Christmas before you know it. So mm. head over to Tee Public. Yeah. Uh, that's where we sell our merch. Get your mom or dad, your cousin, your nephew's friend um, a T-shirt, coffee mug, or something, man. Helps us out. So hit the store, man. And then you get a couple of flags. You learn semaphore. And you go out on a street corner and you start, however you communicate with semaphore, communicate, listen to the idiots. And someone's going to be so curious eventually they're going to want to figure out what you're doing. If somebody makes a sandwich board that says buy idiots gear, will you send them a free T-shirt? Of course. If they go stand on the corner and film it? Picture that's a great idea. Picture with themselves out there with the yeah the big arrow spinning the arrow. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of the old school. You know, oh. the end is nigh kind of sandwich board. <laughs> yeah, and the end is nigh could be on one side of it, and then why not listen to the idiots then? <laughs> right or something like that. Okay, hey, let's get caught up on eighties news. And because I've been so busy with hey, you know what? I guess I could just plug selfless. Selfless, what is that? Shameless self-promotion. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Is perfect for this spot in the show. (laughs) Very good. So, hey, guys, uh, as we've mentioned here and there, I have been working on a audio only, what what they're calling a surround sound experiment. Perfect for Halloween because it's Macbeth, which if you don't know Shakespeare, don't get scared or or do get scared because Macbeth is is pretty much a horror story. Um, And we've decked it out in such a way that, you know, when you're listening to it, you feel that sense of dread and creepiness and even some jump scares. You can get tickets to listen to it uh, this weekend, Halloween, October 30, 30th, 31st, and November 1st by going to knockatthegate.com, starring Derek Wilson, Jeffrey Owens, uh, Lila Robbins, uh, who am I forgetting? A bunch of other really talented, oh, Tamara Tooney, and a bunch of other talented folks who you've loved from other, other TV shows. Um, but because I've been busy doing that, Ray has done what 
any wonderful, amazing uh, co-host would do. And uh, he's going to teach me about... I haven't even been able to keep up on 80s news. I'm out of the loop, sure. right? I'm like, the, you know, you got to educate me now about what's going yeah, on. Well, well, lucky for you and me, yeah. I've been keeping up on the 80s news. Yes. So I'm about to, I guess, learn you something. I yes. Hope. Learn me. So let's start off with the easy one. Okay. Um, uh, Batman 89, the Michael Keaton greatest Batman movie so, yeah, ever. The best Batman ever. So recently there's this new version of Batman where well, it's actually Bruce Wayne. It's like a multiverse thing they're doing at DC. This is in the comic books, not the movie. Yeah, this is comic books. Yeah. And the character's name is Robin King, mm. where in this world, uh, Bruce Wayne actually killed his own parents mm. and became a supervillain. Right. Mm. And in this world, his utility belt is full of things to kill superheroes. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the items, which is now considered canon, which is from the 89 Batman movie, which is seen in the comic book now mm. on his belt, okay. is Smilex. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Which, as you know, is what the Joker used in the movie yeah. to make everybody laugh until they died. Yeah. You die with a smile on your face. <laughs> right. So now that it's been officially released in a DC comic book... Hmm. That means that 89 Batman is now a part of the canon of the DC universe. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, at least with regard to this sort of, uh, you know, Elseworld story where Batman's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah. I I like when they do these, you know, sort of what if stories where they go off and they take a character and just a bunch of writers and artists just run with, run with it wildly. That's always fun. And it's cool because it's actually consistent with Batman because as you know, Batman did try to figure out how he could defeat all of the other members of the Justice League in case they went rogue. You know, yeah, and it gets, a, even, yeah. it gets even crazier because they time travel oh. into different universes and crap. Like in the one that, uh, that he's from, he kills Harley Quinn, mm-hmm. but he's in another one where he didn't and he like tells her that he did and stuff. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Mm, I like that. I like that stuff. You know, and they're starting to yeah. bring that into some of the, it seems like they're going to bring that into the film with the next uh, Flash movie, which is also going to have Michael Keaton in it from, obviously, he's going to be playing Bruce Wayne. We don't know if it's the Bruce Wayne from our world or another that's also, uh, you know, part of that sort of uh, 89 universe. But yeah, that's always so much fun when they do that kind of thing. So yeah, I like that stuff. So um, have you been keeping up on your Evil Dead news? <laughs> no, but I know you obviously sent me a not. lot of it. I know there was a lot yeah. of it. <laughs> There's a shit ton of Evil Dead news going on right now. Um, now they what, are yeah. doing another remake. Okay. Now, you know how they did? I they, we, they did the yeah, they did the reboot. Well, we talked about how Bruce Campbell said he's not going to be in anymore ever again. Maybe I think he's going to be a producer, but he would never be an actor again because he was retired. Yes, as you know, they do the Evil Dead with Bruce, yeah. and they did the um, the one with the girl in the cabin. Right. They did the remake, like, which was a lot more dark and yeah. twisted. And then they did the show. Right. And the goal was always to go back and forth between the two. Mm. So what they've done now is they've decided they're going to do something called uh, the Evil Dead Rise. Mm. This will be another um, female lead playing the role of Deadite Killer because they've already determined there's no point in having a guy do it because all he'll do, well, all that will happen is he'll get compared to Bruce. Right. Right. And it, it's just not fair to him. Yeah. So they're, they're sticking with, but they're not going to do any of the same characters from the movie. Hmm. This one's going to be set in the city. 
Huh. Okay. Huh. Hmm. Does it just become like a zombie movie then, I wonder? I don't know. Yeah. But it's still going to be deadites, so technically yeah. it's not zombies. Yeah. I guess I mean like we've seen zombies in cities before. Uh, you know, um, I don't know. I guess I don't know what the vibe is. I hope it keep, maintains the vibe of, you know, what was it? it uh, is Sam Raimi involved in this film? I, I believe so. Yeah. He's probably not directing I know, it though, but. I know Sam and Bruce are involved. Okay. And there's rumors that Bruce is going to make a cameo in this thing. Mm. Well, if that's true, then you were right. Not as Ash. Oh, okay. Well, hmm. That reminds me of all his Spider-Man cameos he did for Sam Raimi then, which. Yeah. Well, I think that's what it is. I think Sam Raimi's doing it. So Bruce is doing the, the, hey man, hook me up with some free cash in this cameo thing. <laughs> like, like, what is that? What is that? Like a hundred bucks, man, to just show up and walk through a scene? Like if he actually was an extra paid, like what extras get paid? Yeah. I don't think he'd even get that much, but yeah, it's definitely not a lot of well, money. I mean, I mean, if he gets one line. Oh, yeah. No. Well, I don't know. Like, like if he just walks through the scene and he's like, holy shit. Yeah. And he just walks out the other <laughs> side in a hurry. That's like a hundred bucks, right? Why would he bother doing it for the money, though? He wouldn't. <laughs> I have no idea. No. But I think it's cool that they're still doing this. And they're, they're actually, I, I think it could be good. Because from what I've read, the, the lead is going to be protecting her family from the evil dead this time. Okay. So Ash was always a loner. Yeah. Uh, Except I guess he he had a dad on the TV show and he had a quasi family in the the TV show. Yeah, but his dad was Lee Majors. That dad was awesome. That was hilarious. Yeah. Well, hey, I guess we'll maintain or, you know, or refrain from judging too soon until we see it and have uh, high hopes that uh, since you've got Sam and Bruce involved, it'll be something. I trust them a lot. Yeah. So, I think, you know, the thing is, I, I didn't see the the reboot from 2011 or whatever it was, but, uh, you know, I remember it was directed by that that director who was going to do, uh, was it Fede Alvarez, uh, who was going to direct um, the Labyrinth sequel, but isn't anymore. And I it, think he, I think he might be back though. Oh, is that right? I think so. Well, the thing I was going to say is, I mean, Sam Raimi's films have that way of mixing horror and comedy in, in a way that's unique to him and unique to films. Uh, that the, the reboot, I didn't, it didn't seem like it was like that. It seemed like it was a straight up horror movie. It was, yeah, it was a straight up horror movie, yeah. just all the way through. And there are some fantastic parts of that movie. Hmm. So that's why I have hope that this one's also going to be good. I, I like that movie. Um, there are a couple of little cool things, like you get to see um, Ash's car. Oh yeah, it's still it's still at the cabin. Oh, <laughs> it, it's it's still parked out there. So is it part of the same world then? It must be. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Because it's set much later. I see. So. These people come across the cabin now after this. People were murdered there and stuff. Yeah, I don't even know if they know the history of the cabin, but his car is still parked there. So That's it's cool. kind of cool. Yeah. You know, I like, the, <laughs> I like the Evil Dead, like the first, you know, two. And that style and that tone, it reminded me of like a, of that during that era too, you know, we had uh, the house films. Like comedy horror was kind of, I don't know, I don't know that was, you know... Uh, it certainly didn't start in the 80s, I'm sure, but there was a certain vibe about those films that I really like and missed that, I, you know, A New Evil Dead, I'm sure, is probably not going to be like that because Sam's not directing it, which is just a kind of, that. that's a bummer to me in that regard, but it could be good well, anyway. Uh, unless they make enough cash to convince Bruce to do a yep. fourth movie, which anything's possible, I guess, yep. but we'll see. All right. So, moving on to my next one, yeah. uh, Metallica. Oh, yeah. One of your favorites. Big Four. One yes. of the Big Four? Is that what they're called? One of the Big Four. 
Probably the big one. The big one. <laughs> if you got to pick one from the eighties uh, of all time, they're they're the biggest. They're the biggest metal band of all time, mm. bar none. So in nineteen eighty two, they released this demo called "No Life to Leather." Mm. Okay. Um, this is the original recording lineup. This is uh, James and Lars with Dave Mustaine, who would later be in Megadeth. Right. And their original bass player, Ron McGovney. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, before I get to what this is, is this demo circulated across the entire United States with like people just copying it. Like, I think my copy is like a 19th generation (laughs) copy of this thing. It went from San Francisco to Ohio and way beyond. So it wasn't sold. It was only just by people passing it off. Yeah. For the most part, I think it was just them trying to get a record deal. They were giving it to oh, okay. to clubs and all these places, and, and they they probably sold a few, but like this thing's probably worth gold now. Wow, you could probably retire if you had one of these things, but mm. but um yeah, I've I've heard it, love it, but um in 2015 they released it on uh, record store day uh. as a cassette, mm. and recently Ron was asked, "Hey, how much money do you make off this thing?" And he says, I get a, a statement every six months oh. from the company. And currently I am negative $300 on this one. <laughs> he owes them for the cassettes. <laughs> yeah. He actually owes them money. So, Come on. <laughs> so then they, they always ask, when is it going to be released as an official release? And he says, you'll have to talk to James and Lars. Mm. And then when you ask them, they go, you have to talk to Dave. And when you go talk to Dave, this is what Dave says. James wants me to give Lars writing credit on the songs. Hmm. Lars didn't write any of the songs, and I'm not going to give him any credit. Hmm. So that's the holdup on why this thing has never been officially released, because James won't back off on Lars getting writer credit, and Dave just is not going to do it. He'd rather see this thing sit on a shelf and just rot they give Lars writer credit for songs he didn't write. This reminds me of Dave and Lee Ving. You know, what was it? Uh, MD42 or whatever it was called? Uh, MD45, 45. I think it was called. That, yeah. you know, he takes, he records the records with Lee, then he takes them off, and then I don't think he gave Lee any credit for them, or maybe he did, but... So, this sounds like a Dave thing, maybe. Dave is kind of a... Dirt. Dave can hold a grudge forever. Mm. But I got to say, man, I agree. If if Lars didn't write any of the well, stuff on the album, because Ron's not getting writer credit. Well, I guess the thing is, I'm questioning, he, is it true that he didn't, that he didn't, James didn't contribute? Or is it just that Dave? Lars. Oh, Lars did not contribute. Oh, or is Dave just um, saying that? No, Dave, of, Dave and James wrote every song on No Life to Leather. All right, well then, yeah, that's true. For the most part, yeah. it's both of them. And Dave just will not let it go because, you know, the story, you know, they kicked him out of Metallica right before Kill 'Em All came out. <laughs> okay. I mean, they woke him up and said, you're on a bus back to San Francisco. You're out of the band. Oh. And then they took his songs and made the album and became the biggest rock stars on the planet. And obviously he started Megadeth and became the, probably the second biggest metal band on the planet. And, and his anger at them because they were always just, you know, yeah their popularity is just a little bit higher than his just made him angry as shit. And to this day, he probably still wakes up screaming in the middle of the night. Like <laughs> I hate Lars. He, he wakes up screaming, kill them all. Yeah. Um, why, do you know why they kicked him out? 
Uh, he was a alcoholic and he'll even, he, he's said this many times. And, um, when he drank, he was, he could get mean. I see. So they decided they were tired of it. They woke him up and and he said, no second chance, no warning, no nothing. And they were like, (laughs) nope, you're out. Hmm. It does seem like Lars and, uh, James, they seem like pretty no nonsense, Lars, especially no nonsense kind of guy, just cut and dry, straightforward business is business. Yeah, they're businessmen. They're not musicians. Oh, mm. but they happen to be a band that's one of your favorites too, though. I love Metallica, but Dave Mustaine, I like better. I see. He's like the heart versus the, I don't know. I like, yeah, I like his, like, it's funny because like with Megadeth, he'd make, he was, he made videos and Metallica was like, we're not going to make videos. We're not going to make videos. And guess what? As soon as Dave started making videos, mm. They jumped on the bandwagon and started making videos. But they actually did it and their video got more popular, which even pissed him off even more. Yeah. So <laughs> he's just an angry dude. And I kind of like that. I like the angry dude who you, keeps making music just because he's angry. Yes, you are drawn to strong, angry men. Um, yeah. Uh, so are there any any songs on this demo, ones that are hit songs that we you know we know now? Well, I mean, uh, Hit the Lights, Jump on the Fire, Metal Militia. Mm. Uh, Phantom Lord. It's a lot. Um, yeah. Every, I mean, it's almost uh, everything on this is on, um, kill them all. Basically. There's not a song on this. that's not on that album. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was, you know, somewhere between the demo and the, the first album, they, you know, wrote some different songs or better songs. Yeah. No, they were good already. Uh, oh, mechanics is on it, which becomes the four horsemen, but it's, it's, it's cool because you get to hear Dave playing on it. Hmm. You get to hear his versions of the solos, which are way faster than, I mean, the songs are faster on the demo than he ended up being on the album. Wow. Mm. I think that's, which is crazy. Yeah. Mm. Now it seems kind of like karma maybe, but it happened before he screwed over Lee Ving though. So, hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, I, I still would like him to come on our show and at least explain it, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Yeah. I've reached, I have reached out to him a couple of times. Put him on the list. He's, he's on? been on. He's been on the he, list since day one. Yeah, he's been I on love the list. Dave Mustaine. Yeah. I love him, and I wish we could talk to him. We'll have to reach back out to him and see. And guess what? What's what? What what? That's eighties news. Dun, 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 dun. Our guest today made his off-Broadway debut in the 1980s, starring in Three Guys Naked from the Waist Down, alongside future star Scott Bakula. Our guest then went on to battle and defeat comedian Sinbad in season two of Star Search. And soon after, our guest began a successful relationship with the fledgling cable network HBO, first appearing on First and Ten as Bulgarian kicker Zagreb Shkinuski for seven years, and later by voicing the infamous and terrifying host of the horror anthology Tales from the Crypt. Please welcome to the show, the Crypt Keeper himself, John Kassir. Hey, John, how you doing? Fine, creeps. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite time of fear. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> and see, I thought we were going to have to really beg him to do the voice. Well, oh, dude. John, that immediately gives me goosebumps, you know. I mean, when that show first launched in the late 1980s, I was in college, I think, started, but it still creeped me out. And I think a part of it was 
your voice seems the, the character voice that you do for the crypt keeper seems so um how do i say it it seems so uh live uh, that's i'm not making a you know a pun there it seems so live it, it, it really did seem to embody that pop, you know that kevin yeager's puppet there I, I know it seemed to live inside of it it didn't seem like there was a disconnect between the voice and the character you know so it was easy to get creeped out by it how i didn't expect to talk about this so quickly but uh, how how was it that you found a voice that was so perfect for that character? Uh, well, you know, I mean, you kind of put your your finger on it. Uh, you put your bony little finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the auditions were uh, at Kevin Yeager's studio. Hmm. So uh, he invited us. Uh, I mean, I was doing another series for HBO called First and Ten. It was sure. their first their first series. I played the Bulgarian field goal kicker. Right. Z- Z- Zagreb Shkinuski. <laughs> yes. I kick 60-yard field goals. I fuck you both, yes? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I got a call from my agents, and they're like, yeah. uh, they want you to come down and audition for this show that HBO is doing called Tales from the Crypt. And I go, you mean like the comic book that I collected when I was a kid? Oh, and they're wow. like, they're like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> they're making that into a series? That I, I, She said, yeah. I go, get out. You know, I just thought it was going to be, you know, not everybody had, um, you know, HBO oh, yeah. back then. It's like, you know, if you liked the show or, I mean, there wasn't very many shows. Mm-hmm. And I had already worked on two of the, two of the other series, uh, uh, you know, reoccurred a little bit on dream on just a couple of times sure. and worked on first and 10 for a number of years. And, 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 uh, you know, so if you wanted to see HBO, you didn't have it, you went and had like an HBO party at somebody's house on Saturday or something, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, they were, my agent was like, yeah, they want you to come down and audition for, uh, the crypt keeper and i was like okay cool <laughs> so they're like where is it they go it's a kevin yeager studio and i went you mean like kevin yeager the guy that made chucky and <laughs> designed freddie and they're like yeah i go i had to go down to his studio and you know, i'm like that's all i'm thinking about you know because yeah. <laughs> you're thinking this show is just going to be you know like some little cult show for you know freaks like me that like comic books or you know that kind of thing it'll last a season and it'll be done yeah so i went down to kevin's studio and of course you walk in and there's like you know pieces from movies hanging on the wall and stuff it's a big warehouse with you know just everything and you know kevin's some of kevin's most amazing work is just the clay models that he starts out with Mm -hmm. that he carves on his desk you know and you're like oh my god this is amazing this guy's you know so you see these other actors and they're, all, you know, they're getting all like worked up like they're an audition and, you know, they're reading the copy <laughs> and it says stuff like, it has all these puns, be careful what you ask for, you may get it, you know, and they're like going, oh my God, this stuff sucks. What is this shit? You know, you're like going, <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, they don't get it. This is Shakespeare to this guy, you know, he's like, love saying this stuff. And so, you know, I saw he had different versions of what he was creating for the Crypt Keeper. He had already, you know, there were like torsos with a head on them sitting, you know, in a row, you know, some with a nose, some without a nose. Some, if you know, if you if you find the uh, tabletop book by Digby Deal, you'll some see some of the, the pictures of 
what Kevin was working on, right. you know, through drawings and that kind of thing. You know, I found out later that what he was originally trying to create was a combination of the, the Crypt Keeper, the, the Old Witch, and the Vault Keeper. He was right. trying to make a, you know, something that embodied all three of those characters, which I think he was really, ama- you know, amazing at doing it. I mean, think of how many people know what that face is, you know. Right. Yeah. And the Crypt Keeper was a little different looking. He was darker and kind of, you know, more was shrouded and, and all this thing. And, and so I... He, he was taking people back one by one into his into the back of his studio. He had like a little office and he had a little boom box with a, a lav mic attached to it. So, you know, with a cassette tape. And that's what he was recording you on. He didn't have a sound studio or anything. Right. And so I'm sitting there and I, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, one of the reasons they asked me to come in was because, you know, here I was this actor and, um, you guys know me through three guys naked from the waist down, which is sure. the, sh- the show that launched my career off Broadway, uh, where I played a stand-up comic. Uh, and from there, I was asked to do Star Search because they thought I was a stand-up comic, and I didn't really have any material, so I did a bunch of voices and and. You know, I do like the Wizard of Oz in two and a half minutes, you know. <laughs> As coroner, I must concur, I thoroughly examined her. You know, because I didn't really have an act, I had to, you know, I did voices and all these characters. And so that's what they thought of me. They needed somebody who could be, you know, have the delivery of a stand-up comic and, and be a good actor and, and, and come up with a great voice that fit this puppet. So I'm thinking, okay, what did I used to watch that that had a host like this? And I used to love, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock presents, and he was he so enjoyed saying puns and stuff like that too. And um, and so and I'm thinking that, and then I'm thinking, okay, I can give him like this really great cackle, like my Wicked Witch of the West from my uh, Wizard of Oz bit, and you know. But then the rest of it was just off of what I saw in the puppet with you know, rotting teeth and holes in his throat. Mm. And he was really kind of a small little guy, you know, mm. impish looking guy in person. Yep. So, you know, originally I made him even more whispery and scary <laughs> and, you know, this kind of thing. So I'm doing that for Kevin and he recording it immediately. He must have been listening to a bunch of voices because he looked up like <laughs> he looked like somebody had just put a cattle product in that and he started like laughing and like doing the shaking his head yes 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 you know kind of thing and which started cracking me up which i was like perfect the, the character laughs at his own jokes you know yeah. and so i'm be careful what you ask for you may get it <laughs> you know i'm doing it for him and he's like and he and he loved it, you know. So I walked out of there, and, oh. and then I got a call, and they're like, "Well, you know, they need you to go do it the next day for Joel Silver and, and Richard Donner, two of the biggest in in Hollywood." No pressure, no pressure at all. And they, you know, so I I show up on what they're, you know, what they're using to re, to sh- to shoot the episodes and stuff, and um, they're building a the Crypt Keeper's crypt there in some warehouse way out in the corner of the valley somewhere. Um, cause you know, I mean, they didn't have much budget, you know, HBO didn't have, give you a lot of money. Sure. So yeah. I, I went in there and of course they had, you know, Joel and Dick were visiting the set and they had me come into what was their office, which was some paneled room in a, in a trailer. And I did it for them and they were like, okay, we'll see you on the set. You know? And I was just <laughs> like, okay, that's too easy. I, you know, you don't <laughs> believe it, but of course it, it worked out. Yeah. I mean, you guys were saying, you know, 
about the you know the show go, uh, being a one-off and then and going away. Yeah. Um, after the first season, which was you know the episodes were directed by Robert Zemeckis, who was a producer, who we all know he is. Sure. You know, Back to the Future and Horace Forrest Gump and some of the most some of our most beloved movies and uh, Richard Donner, who you know directed Superman and uh, you know. Uh, Goonies and and uh, you know of course all the lethal weapon weapons, movies yeah. and was a, more of a hands-on producer with this and Walter Hill who was producer on the show um, you know the first three episodes were were directed by these guys yeah. so you know I mean they didn't they didn't spare any money and they got a lot of favors and they did what they did and then you know HBO's like this is too expensive of a show we can't do it and then they brought in. Gil Adler, who uh, who I still keep in close oh, touch okay. with, we do a we do a Zoom cocktail party once a week. <laughs> but uh, Gil Gil was uh, you know had been producing Freddy's Nightmares right. for uh, you know for a song. You know they were like you know because Joel was Joel sat him down. He goes, we need a producer. You know I can do this many pages in a day. He goes, okay. <laughs> he goes, how many pages do you need to do? He goes, he told him how many pages. He goes, what do we do with the second half of the day? You know, and he's like, what? He goes, yeah, we were producing twice that many pages on Freddy's Nightmares. He goes, you're hired. You know, and the show wound up on, you know, seven years, you know I mean? it's And so of course we got uh, a little more money to go into the Crypt Keeper and Kevin, you know, Kevin got to put more of the little servos, you know, those are little hobbyist motors um, in the face and all that sure. stuff. Cause when we first started recording, you know, the Crypt Keeper, uh, you know, I went into the recording studio with Kevin and he was going to be uh, directing uh, the puppeteers, uh, you know, on those episodes. And, you know, I started going, well, kitties, how are, you know, and he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, the mouth moves really slow and not very much. And you, so I go, okay, how about we'll make him a little, you know, creepier and scarier. Hello, kitties. It's your old pal, the crap <laughs> He goes, great, perfect. So, you know, if you watch the first, season or two you know i mean that's the crypt keepers a little darker and a little more sinister but he's so gleeful that you you still feel like he's that same guy that comes out of his shell later right. um and the reason we were able to bring him out of his shell was because you know they got to redesign the crypt keeper so that he moved better and we could give him more of that stand-up kind of delivery and you're, and you're pointing out the fact that you would record the voice and then the puppeteers had to match you to the movement to your dialogue is that right oh totally i mean you know they would not only that but you know some of some of the even my movements and stuff mm. these guys were great at nailing I mean, these puppeteers were master puppeteers i sure. mean you know it took three guys just to make the face move so they had to coordinate together you know and um and another two to make the the hands and body move, and then if they added feet, there was a little woman that got on came wow. over there in Zelda. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was pretty cool because here, here Kevin had originally built the original Crypt Keeper at us. He gave him such little money, built him out of spare parts. Here he was like, okay, what am I going to use for the eyes? He goes, well, I got a bunch of spare Chucky eyes here. Let's try those, you know. And he kept them. He loved them so much, he kept them on there. And those those ba those baby blues that the Crypt yes. Keeper has are Chucky <laughs> eyes. So. Which it, is kind of a cool it, thing. Like, stark contrast to this rotting corpse of a of a body. 
Uh, right. I mean, yes. But, that, but, but that. you know, I mean, that goes back to why it, it melds so well with the voice and the Crypt Keeper and the thing. And it's, you know, eventually those guys got good enough to follow me live. Oh. You know, I mean, we never did it for wow. the show because why would you have to? You would want right. to. But we did interviews. We did. We did the um, they recorded live the uh, Horror Hall of Fame that we did a couple of years uh, over at Universal on the Conan stage. And uh, the first year, I think, uh, was Robert England and I were the hosts and uh, well, me as a crypt keeper. And, you know, like I was my job was to, you know, to 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 go back and forth with Robert and, and also to interview people in the back as the crib keeper and like now something really scary, a commercial, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And literally the puppeteers were sitting there watching me. And I was, I was trying to stay within certain, you know, catchphrases and stuff Mm. that they could recognize. So then they could follow through with it. But they, you know, even if they were just like a half second behind me, you wouldn't have noticed on camera. Mm. And um, that's how good they were. But um, because otherwise you were ad libbing the, the show, you mean? Totally. It was wow. completely ad-libbed, you know, it's completely ad-libbed. Yeah, no, I remember just reading recently that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned how they they shot in the Valley, but then the last season moved to uh, UK, and someone suggesting that it wasn't for budgetary purposes, it was to get new blood in there, and that maybe that was the ultimate demise of the show, because they, again, this is... Well, it had already been, it had already been wrapped up, actually. We wrapped right? up after six seasons, and so, in fact, that was... The last episode, one of the last, the last episode of the sixth season, I uh, was in, and that was you know with like our nod to Alfred Hitchcock to having me in the episode. Mm. Oil's well that ends well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but I love that Crypt Keeper sequence in the end because he's sitting there watching me on TV with a remote control, going, you know, those other actors were good. But this one is a regular Gory Cooper, a Robert Dedford, and that voice, I can swear he reminds me of someone I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was kind of fun. But, uh, I, you know, the show had started to become popular over there. And I can't remember. Gil had given me some more insight as to why they wound up over there. It did have to do with certain amount of budgetary things, and it also had to do with the fact the show is becoming, you know, popular, launching and becoming popular over there. Yep. I don't even remember. I mean, it could have been, you know, I mean, there could have been a, a slew of reasons, but whatever it worked out wasn't the best season. There were some good, great episodes in there, but because they were hiring mostly, I mean, it's amazing the actors that are in that season that you go, holy crap! It's crazy. That, that's Daniel Craig. We didn't even know who he was back then. Now he's James Bond and that's Emma Sands. And that's, you know, I mean, it's all these different people. It's funny though. They didn't always get it because they always tried to put, they always tried to put some kind of campy spin on it. And, you know, somebody along the way goes, well, it's a campy show based on a comic book or something. And really, if you look at all the other episodes, everybody played it as serious as anything else that you would be able to act. You know, and they were always able to get these big actors on the show because they'd go, well, this comic actor never gets to do series serious or this serious actor never gets to do comedy or this actor wants to direct and is going to get an opportunity to direct, whether it was Michael Keaton or or Michael J. Fox or Tom Hanks or, you know, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. They all got to, you know, and they had all worked for Joel and, and Richard Donner and all these different people. So they were able to come and get them to come work on the show for scale. Right. 
I don't know if you'd be able to do that today, yeah. but, um, you know, it was a big deal. It's amazing. And you, you mentioned uh, Gil Adler a, a few times now, of course, as a producer of the show. And I, I had read that um, in 2011, he was looking to possibly reboot the, 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 sh- the show, except for, as you know, there's a number of legal uh, rights issues sort of tied up with EC Comics and the Gaines, I guess, Foundation. Um, and because of that, it wasn't going to include Crypt Keeper and wasn't going to be an anthology, I don't believe. It, it, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the, the show is based on the comic books, right? you know, the, the producers that I mentioned and they, and they included some other big people too. I mean, you know, you're talking about, um, Joel Silver, uh, Richard Donner, Walter Hill, Bob Zemeckis and David Geiler who had produced alien. Mm. So, I mean, you know, these big guys in the business, they had, gotten together and they licensed from who uh, you know William Gaines was still alive and he licensed you know all his EC comics that had appropriate stories including Tales from the Crypt, uh, Two-Fisted Tales, Tales from the Vault. I you know I can't even remember all the different comic books but they all fall, fell under the same group of EC comics and I think there were uh, I uh, I remember the number being like 550 stories that they could that they licensed that they could use up you know some of them were similar to the same you know so they didn't you know that kind of thing but you know once we stopped doing the show we didn't have the rights anymore sure and of course we had created our own version of the crypt keeper for it right so then you fall into the category of not having the rights to tales from the crypt anymore and anybody else who goes and licenses tales from the crypt doesn't have the rights to our version of the crypt keeper right and so ec comics wanted to do something different with it so gill was gonna try to do something with it and then of course you know this other situation came up where um i think it was tnt with with m night Shyamalan. right and they were going to try to do something new with it um, and have a whole block of horror. And, you know, I mean, it, I think they tried, I think, it, you know, like the show was up in the air as to who owned the rights, still owned the rights, and so somebody else had licensed it but didn't get anything up and, and all these things. But really what it came down, a lot of it came down to, and I don't know if this was played a part in why none of it worked out, um, that nobody had the rights except our guys to – the Crypt Keeper that yeah. we had, and it becomes so identifiable with the franchise that nobody wanted to do it without that Crypt Keeper. Oh, gosh. There would be a revolt. I mean, an entire generation grew up with uh, your version of the Crypt Keeper. Of course. Absolutely. You know, so it just wouldn't be the same. I mean, that Crypt Keeper was the reason why it, the franchise wasn't just another anthology series. Right. You identified the show with the Crypt Keeper sequences as well as the stories, and so it was a series on its own, even without the stories almost, you know, and, you know, he also made you know that it was supposed to be fun and he's the ride up to the top of the roller coaster before you take the ride down (laughs) and the whole deal that, you know, whatever analogy you want to use, but the Crypt Keeper was there for that reason. And I don't know, it's, it'd be a tough show to do now because of the expense of doing it and getting the rights back have been impossible for me see comics, at least for our guys. Um, uh, there's a number of reasons why, but I won't get into that, but I would imagine HBO and was it Warner brothers at the time made, you know, made EC some money that they probably hadn't seen in a while because of your version. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know why they, it seemed like they're throwing money away to not, you know, fight. Uh, well, it might've been because it was such a low budget show at the time and mm-hmm. HBO that maybe they didn't make money. Well, that could have had, that could have had part of it, you know? 
Yeah. And uh, which is too bad because they could be, like you said, they could be making a lot of money just based on that alone if they made a deal to do it right. But, you know, there, there's, there's bad blood <laughs> <laughs> that gets left behind in these situations over years. And some people are just like, you know what, I, you know, I, th- we did that. Let's mm-hmm. do something different or whatever. And it's not our decision. It's out of our hands. And, well, and as big as horror has become over the years, you yeah, know, the I mean, anthology horror in particular, I mean, you're seeing a, you know, a resurgence of it much like in the 1980s uh, on Hulu, oh, yeah. Hulu's got their own Netflix. They all have their own branded horror anthologies now. Uh, FX. Yeah. It, it seems like perfect time to strike. You mentioned William Gaines was alive when the when the show aired. Uh, do, do, mm-hmm. do you know what his response was to the seeing his? Oh, he loved the show. Yep, he loved the show. He, he loved it. I, he invited me to his house. Wow. I, I got to see. Say, he had uh, one of the best collections of scripts and comic books and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, you walked into his uh, house, as I remember. Uh, and it's 30 years ago now, so who knows if my memory is exactly the way I remember it. But, you know, having been a kid who loved comic books and stuff, all I remember is his, his collection of stuff that, that just looked like you were walking through a library. Yeah. If you look up the Crypt Jam, which Kevin Yeager directed, it's, a, you know, kind of like a, um, you know, it was a, a Chucky Booker who used to write music for, who, who wrote music for uh, Janet Jackson and all these other people wrote the Crip Jam uh, that we used and they did a video of it. And it's, okay, it's, right. it's got a little bit of like thriller type yes, nods in it, that. but it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a really fun song. It's, it's, it's um, more of a dance mix kind of a song, but it's great. Um the Crypt Keepers in the house with a groove that's nasty and mean, like the effects of a guillotine, a permanent headache for the end of the mission, because you have entered the Keeper's television. <laughs> Do you forget any of your lines, John? I mean, uh, yeah, I, for, I did most of them. You know, it's like I do all these cameos for fans and stuff now. And it's like I go, I wish I could remember more of these puns because you wind up using a lot of the same ones over and over again. But the fans appreciate that. They want to hear the same, you know, corny puns. You know what I mean? It's like every once in a while, people, somebody will remind me of one that was said. And, you know, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. You know, do you have uh, (laughs) fans approaching you uh, convinced they can do an authentic sounding Crypt Keeper impersonation? Oh, yeah. I've heard. Have you heard? I've one? heard hundred. I've heard hundreds. Have you heard a good one? <laughs> you know, I've never heard anyone nail it. You know, and it, and it's not and it's not because they can't make the voice sound like the voice, or they can't kind of capture the humor. But it's again, it's about me plugging myself into that character. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. as a voice actor, you know, I did, that's you know, the Crypt Keeper was my first big voice job. It's it's launched it launched an entire voiceover career for me that's lasted you know for the last thirty years so it's um, you know uh, you either have an affinity for doing for bringing a voice to life that that melds with the material or not I've worked with some of the best actors in Hollywood some of them are extremely good at it whether it's Jack Black and in, in you know um, Kung Fu Panda or Tom Hanks uh, you know as Woody or whoever but you know, then there are there are just people that no matter how hard they try, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to, you know, visualize what it is that makes, you know, something that's not their selves come to life. Um, you know, oh, people imitating you. So, yep. you know, some people will go, 
you know, but the, you know, whether it's the, the exact pronunciation of the way he spoke, you know, it's like I've done kind of like a soft British accent because <laughs> I've always imagined the Crypt Keeper having been one of those, you know, actors that did a different play every night, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, like Albert Finney in, in the dresser, you know, it's like, oh, no, sir, not a fellow, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and I've always I've always kind of based, you know, a certain amount of this who he is on being, you know, uh, an old, you know, drunken actor like, you know, <laughs> Peter O'Toole in my favorite year or, you know, uh, Tom Courtney or, uh, you know. John Hurd or, you know, one of these actors, I've always <laughs> thought of him being one of those guys mm. that he's, you know, classically trained and speaks his puns as as though they're Shakespeare. And, you know, and capturing that is a whole different thing besides just doing an impersonation of a voice. You know, I mean, I've had to, to, to do voices of characters that were beloved by other, you know, from other actors over the years, whether it was Pete Puma um, uh, I know you, you know, and it wasn't just about like nailing the voice. It was, yeah. you know, coming up with a, who, who he was in the character. Um, and it may not have been exactly what was originally done. Um, but, uh, at the same time it was alive. And sometimes that makes a difference of you getting it and you go, you know, that Daffy Duck doesn't sound exactly like, you know, uh, Mel Blanc's Daffy Duck, but you know, there's something very alive and, and sassy about him that, that fits, you know, or, you know, I had to do takeover for Charlie Adler uh, uh, just briefly as, uh, as Buster Bunny and Tiny Toons. And, um, you know, Charlie had been doing the show for a number of years and, you know, he was done dealing with those people, whatever reason, for whatever reason, um, his relationship with them, ended and and uh he went on and you know of course he's done thousands of voices and directs and we worked together and they approached me because they had they had done an episode where where the buster bunny was doing the crypt keeper in the halloween episode and they were like oh well if the buster bunny can do the crypt keeper the crypt keeper must be able to do buster bunny so they didn't even audition me they just thought offer me the part i had to walk in and i was like oh how am i going to just you know, bring that character to life. So, I, you know, I hadn't. Yeah. As, a, as a kid, you and I remember reading stories about you know Tom Kenny and Billy West doing voices growing up. You know, they'd watch Popeye and then they'd find Popeye. Mm -hmm. You had to have. You say how you know this. Uh, you had this really interesting. It's almost like a you know uh, one of these anthology series from the 1980s. It's a mystery how your career went throughout that decade. But you going from stage to pseudo comedian, I suppose, to a voice actor, but. You had to have, I would imagine, have tried this out years before, maybe even as a kid or a youth, listening to other cartoons and animated shows. No, I'll forget it. I I impersonated everything on television. My parent, my whole family hated me. We had five kids in my family, and they would be like, "Johnny, shut up!" You know. Um, <laughs> so Saturday mornings, uh, you know, I I'd, I'd get up early and get downstairs first so that I could control the TV set. I would take the knob off the TV set because you didn't have a remote control back right. then. And I'd turn it to the channel that I wanted and I'd hide the knob so they couldn't change the channel, you know, unless you could find a pair of needle nose pliers, right. yes. you know, yes. and, um, but I'd imitate everything. And now of course I made a career out of it. And I'm like, <laughs> you guys work for a living. 
Um, but, uh, <laughs> now you know, we have a TV so, with no knobs. Yeah. Family. You, yes, exactly. Do you remember the first and the earliest impersonations you did? Oh God. You know, I can't remember the first, but I do remember getting my first, I was a little kid, you know, it was probably the Beatles or something. You know, I also had ventriloquist <laughs> dummies and I used to bring them to life at Toy Barn. Mm. I'd get up on the shelf and I'd hide on the shelf with the, with the ventriloquist dummy and the people would walk by and it'd be like, hey, how you doing? You know, people are like, oh my <laughs> God, what the hell? You know, scared me, um, you know, because back then my mom would go grocery shopping and next door was the mm. Toy Barn and she'd just drop us off, you know, and you can't do that now. <laughs> my mother yeah. go to jail for like abandoning her kids at Toy <laughs> Barn. You know, but back then, you know, that's what people did. And, you know, eventually my mom got me one uh, as a kid. A Toy Barn? A Toy Barn, yeah. I had a really cool, <laughs> I had a really cool Jerry Mahoney doll. <laughs> I still have it somewhere, no you know, way. it's probably in pieces somewhere, but yeah. I remember getting my first tape recorder as a kid and I would do like Tom Jones, you know, <laughs> where, where, where do love? you know, I would do like, you know, I would imitate, would, you know, would record that stuff and listen to it and play it back. And, um, but you know what? I honestly probably, you know, I remember all through school, um, doing impersonations of the Wizard of Oz. And it wound up mm. being one of my signature pieces in my stand-up. And I had a buddy, Fred, who was, you know, the two of us wound up doing in high school. We had, you know, we had been all through elementary school and stuff. And we used to do, always do the talent shows. He'd wheel me out on a dolly and I'd be a three-in-one machine. Or, you know, we'd be like, you know, the Smothers Brothers or, or Burns and Shriver or something like that. We'd do these routines you know, by high school, we were doing the morning announcements and right. be like, you know, I'd be like, Jackie Stewart in the BRA's car. <laughs> I can't believe it. There's a, you know, get fried in, uh, an egg anywhere on the track today. You know, and we do the Beatles, I jump, old Jude. You know, we do like, you know, the following morning announcement brought to you by a grant from the Mobile Corporation. <laughs> you know, and this kind of stuff. And we were basically, you know, our high school's version of Fireside Theater. And um, and that, that kind of really started me taking, you know, voice acting as, a, as something that you could do, um, like a radio show kind of person, you know, the kind where you bring characters to life and go in and out of characters and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, that probably is the same skill set that probably lost me certain acting jobs because, I, <laughs> you know, because I probably went in and went a little too, too out there with yeah. the character, you know, and then, but at the same time, you know, got me, you know, getting to play Deadpool, and, you know, as the, the original voice of Deadpool before anybody else did it because they are like, Oh, this guy talks to the camera and he's sarcastic. Oh, the group keeper, let's get him to do it. You know, it is, it is curious that, you know, uh, it seemed like, well, it seems like a, such a wonderful combination of, of, of your various interests throughout your your life and your career came together in this character, the Crypt Keeper, you know, your love of horror, the specific comic uh, Tales from the Crypt and those, those that uh, series in uh, voice acting. But it is curious that I guess you didn't make a beeline more straight for voice acting than you did. I mean, you lucked out. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it wasn't, out, but... it wasn't, um, it wasn't there in front of me, you know, I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it was an exclusive club of people that were doing it. Yeah. When I first started sure. doing it, I mean, I was invited in by the best agents in the business because they they were like, 
oh, this guy's playing the Crypt Keeper is awesome. Yeah. Oh, we gotta, we gotta see if we can get him, you know, and, uh, and, you know, that was the ICM voiceover department, um, which is now DPN. And I've been with them my entire voiceover career, you know, um, I think it's harder to make it as a voice actor today than it was, uh, back in the 1980s to work consistently. Yeah. I mean, I have tons of actor friends who are good at it, that that, they get auditions and they put them out there and you record them at home. Of course. Mm -hmm. Now. Um, you used to have to show up from place to place to place. Um, and, uh, and they never book anything. They go, I've been auditioning for three years and haven't booked anything. I was like, well, you're competing with the best in the business. You know, you're competing with the people that have been doing it and, you know, they're going to hire somebody that they know can deliver, you know, there's no reason for them not to. And I mean, I can't tell you how many auditions I put out there a week and how few I get compared to how many I audition. And it's, and that has to do with how many people are actually trying to do it. Um, and well, you know, you know, they try to get the most famous person they can get to do it. And it's like, why that doesn't bring it to life. It yeah. doesn't necessarily bring it to life. And I'm not that, you know, I mean, there are people, like I said, there are people that are, you know, as good as anybody that are, that are well-known actors. And it was like, you know, back in the day, it was on a number of, you know, series and, you know, you're getting paid a heck of a lot more money to be on camera than off camera. Um, but the, uh, but the, the opportunity to work steady and, um, the opportunity to play things you never get to play on camera is, uh, is the, the upside to voice acting. Um, you know, originally when I first started, you know, establishing myself as, as a voice actor on top of my sitcom work and, you know, character work in movies and on, on uh, dramatic series and stuff. Um, I was doing mostly cartoons, whether it was Earthworm Jim or, you know, uh, um, you know, Cat Dog or, you know, all these Nickelodeon shows and all these different cartoons. And they were fun. It was Reader's Theater. You know, you're sitting there in the same room with uh, we did Cat Dog. It was uh, me and Billy West and Carlos Alas Rocky mm. and Jim Cummings and Tom Kinney and Maria Bramford and Dwight Schultz. <laughs> and I mean, just like awesome. It's the Justice League of voice actors. Oh, totally. And yeah. we're in the room together, just killing each other, cracking each other up. Each, each, every Tuesday, we'd go in and do it, you know? And uh, we had so much fun. And that translates into a good show. You know, and of course, I didn't know how popular shows like Rocket Power were. You know, every kid that was had a single dad was like, oh, I love Rocket Power. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, you know, Ray Rocket was based on the surfer dude dad that lived across the street from me. You know, here I live near Malibu. And this, he's like, hey, Johnny K, come on, let's go for a bike ride. You know, I was like, you know, when I auditioned for... <laughs> <laughs> you know, for for Rocket Power, they're like, that guy's a real guy, isn't he? You know, when I was doing it for him, I was like, yeah, he is. <laughs> they're like, he's so specific. Even though he sounds like he's a typical surfer dude, there's something really specific about him. I go, yeah, he's my neighbor. <laughs> no, I, he has no idea. Yeah, I'm, like, don't pilfer, I'm pilfering him for, as, a, as a character. Back in the day when... Tales from the Crypt, you know, first started and, and it became popular very quickly. Um, so even then, what, what was it odd? Was or do you enjoy the anonymity that uh, you know it took a while because we didn't have social media? Folks didn't know that you know we weren't able to put John Casier together with uh, the Crypt Keeper. 
You know, it was funny because they used to have all these behind the scenes you know, footage and stuff. That was when they started doing that. That was the period where right. all of a sudden people were like, knew what green screen was. Mm-hmm. Like you talk to a kid and he goes, hey, I saw you on this special and I see, I, you know, where these people were on green screen. And I was like, how do you know about that? Because like I saw it, they showed it on Nickelodeon and blah, you know, this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, I remember, <clears throat> you know, I mean, after I went to Star Search, I mean, forget it, Star Search was like, took me from doing off Broadway and street performing, which is how I was making most of my money in front of the Metropolitan Museum in New York Mm. to um, not being able to walk down the street in New York without being recognized, you know? Um, And, you know, then when I moved to Hollywood, of course, uh, you know, started getting on other shows. But of course the first series I got was, on HBO, which not that many people saw. So it was like the, <laughs> the recognizability factor started to go away a bit, which didn't bother me as long as I kept working, yeah. you know. Um, but, uh, you know, once I started showing footage of the guy behind the scenes and the Crypt Keeper and interviewing me and stuff, people were like, oh, my God, I thought you were like – you know, we we thought we were going to see some old, like, you know, Wolfman Jack guy or something, you know? It was like William Hickey. I, you know, we, I was 27 years old. You know, I mean, it was just like, they're like, oh, God, man, you were, you know, <laughs> we left to, you know, 27, somewhere around there, you know? And they were, and I looked even young. I looked like I was, I just turned 20. I mean, I, I was really young looking when I was, you know, up until like I was in my mid 30s. But, you know, People were like, oh, my God, I had no idea that I was the Crypt Keeper, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, you got that. But at the same time, we didn't know kids were watching the show. Oh, yeah. You know, I think they – yeah. I mean, there's a bigger fan base for Tales from the Crypt now that we know of than were when it was originally on the air, you know, because it was HBO. And it's not television. It's HBO. I remember yeah. sitting in the audience – of the screening of the first episodes, they were showing it like it was a movie for everybody as a premiere. And there were HBO people sitting in front of me and they had no idea who I was, uh, except the people that knew me from first and 10. And, um, and these two guys are like, you know, you know, there's a whole row of HBO execs and somebody behind them is like, wow, this is really good television. The guy goes, not television, it's HBO. <laughs> and you saw, every, so, and you saw every one of those HBO execs look at each other like, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's our tagline. People forget how different it was back then between regular television and cable because it's completely oh, it. different back then. Yeah. I did a lot of stuff for Showtime over the years and Showtime was just starting you know, to get known, but mainly they were doing you know, sporting events and soft porn, you know? So it was like, that was, that's all they had. Both ends of the spectrum. You know? Well, like first intent was really popular because it was sports, comedy and sex. You know I mean? It's like, there are kids all, there are people all the time that were like, Oh man, when I was a kid, I used to watch first intent. I was like, yeah, because your mom didn't know you were watching tits. <laughs> you know, I was like, yes. you know, that's why I watched dream on. Of course. Yeah. You know, but uh, that's that's why and people are, you know, people are like, oh, you work with O.J. Simpson. I was oh. like, yeah, six years. <laughs> <laughs> and you live to tell about it, John. Allegedly. So, hey, we are so grateful that, uh, you know, on our show, we, we set out to prove how 
1980s was different for so many reasons and better in many regards. And it seems like that combination of, I don't know, magic of the 1980s, you know, led to or certainly one thing that was very important to us in, the, in that decade. And it just made it in. And that is uh, Tales from the Crypt. So we're very grateful for your time today and sharing uh, stories uh, from the crypt. Happy Halloween, idiots. <laughs> Enjoy my favorite time of fear. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember watching Tales from the Crypt? Um, I absolutely you know? loved watching Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, One of my too. favorite shows in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I remember I used to somehow, I don't know if, I, I think we, we had HBO at my house eventually, but I know my girlfriend at the time, so I was either a senior in high school or a freshman in college. I think I was a senior or junior in high school maybe. Um, she had it. And so somehow, I think did it come out on Saturday night or Sunday night? One of those nights, right? Yeah, it was definitely on the weekend. So I'd be at her house and we would watch it together, you know, snuggled up on the couch. And uh, it, and it, the, the best moments for me were always the Crypt Keeper. Those were the creepiest ones to me. You know, the show was, was good, but there was something about that animatronic. I mean, you felt, I felt like it was, I wasn't lying, you know, I wasn't exaggerating when I said it to John. I felt like that thing was alive. Yeah, uh, most intros to a show, yeah. I hate, like... The first few times you see the show, it's rolling through the opening scenes and you're like, all right, that's cool. And by the time you get halfway through the first season, you're like, Jesus Christ, can you guys shorten this thing yeah. up? God damn. Get back to the Crypt Keeper. But well, I'm talking about every other show. Oh, every other show. Sorry. Yeah, every other show. But the Crypt Keeper, that opening scene where it goes down the hall, yeah. down the staircase and goes and finds him. I never got tired of seeing that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And you know, it was, it, it's... It, We'll have to do an episode entirely on uh, horror sh horror anthologies from the 1980s because there's a lot of them, and you know maybe we could talk about that soon. But it, it is like a obviously Tales from the Crypt came out in the end of the 80s, but there was some there was a show at the beginning of the 80s that had a similar thing where they would go through the building first. It was called the Dark Room before they got to the Dark Room mm. door. Oh yeah, very creepy. That long setup, wonderful. Yes, and what I was going to say was I'd want to hurry. I thought what you were going to say is I want to hurry through the episode to get back to the Crypt Keeper because I want to see more of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah and and then. He was always fantastic on every episode, so yep. that's cool. So, we, you know, hey, I learned how John was able to find that character and embody it in such a way that is frightening people still to this day. But did we prove anything about the 1980s? <sighs> we have proven. We did? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Oh, okay, wow. Conviction. That the 1980s yep. had the best horror host of any decade. Absolutely. And now if we were brave enough to do our Crypt Keeper voices, we would say uh, uh, we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots in the Crypt Keeper voice though. So. I'm not doing it either. I'm just going to say see ya. See <laughs> ya.